The California Dreaming Podcast is brought to you by Blueberry. There is more to making a podcast than just talking into your mic and hitting publish. You're going to need a little bit more than that. And I'm talking about reliable hosting so your time can be spent working on your show. You want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I've chosen to use Blueberry. It's simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website. It can't get any easier, especially for someone like me who knows nothing. If you host a show or you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give it a try for a month for free. Their dedicated support team will be right there to help you every step of the way. And with one month for free using our promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses to start up that podcast that you keep talking about starting. There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcasts and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond in helping out the show, you can support us on our Patreon. You'll be able to gain access to at least one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than 50 episodes that you can binge, so it's a pretty good deal starting at just $1. And in addition to that, there are about eight premium episodes available for supporters at the $5 and above tiers. I do have some new patrons to thank, but because I'm a little bit behind, I think I will save the thank yous for the next episode. And if you're unable to sign up for a monthly subscription to Patreon, you can help us with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping us going, keeping us moving forward, and keeping us ad-free. So thank you. So when I started looking into the case that we're going to talk about today, I heard someone say the phrase, asking for a Kevorkian. I'm fairly certain that most of us are familiar with the Armenian name. As it has become synonymous with the act of assisted suicide because of a doctor named Jack Kevorkian. And it would be his actions that began accelerating the conversations in the United States when it came to legislation related to the death with dignity movement and the rights to die. It's a topic we covered almost two years ago in episode 71. According to Biography.com, Murad Jacob Kevorkian, better known as Jack, was born May 26, 1928 in the city of Pontiac, Michigan. He was the middle of three. His parents were Levon and Satnig. They were refugees who fled the massacres that were taking place in Armenia following World War I. Levon was helped by religious missionaries, having first made his way to Turkey and eventually winding up in Pontiac, Michigan by 1912. As for Jack's mother, she was a part of the death march out of Armenia. And we talked about this back in the episode on the Zankow chicken murders. But she was able to connect with family members that she had in France. And like Levon, she also wound up in Pontiac. She had a brother who had also made his way to the Detroit suburb as well. Levon worked, where else, with the automobile industry. As the Armenian community in the area continued to grow, like many cities with pockets of immigrants from all over the world, they began developing their own dedicated community, and that is how Levon and Satnig eventually met. They got married, they had their first child, a daughter that they named Margaret in 1926, son Jack came next in 1928, and a third child, another daughter named Flora, and while I was unable to find an exact birth year for Flora, in the 1940 census she was listed as being 10 years old, so it's estimated that she was born in 1930. However, as luck would have it, by 1930, Levon was laid off from his job, right after he and his wife had their third child. The Great Depression was in full swing, as many as 20% of Americans had found themselves out of work. 
But Levon was able to launch his own excavating business and he was quite successful, which wasn't easy during this period of time in the United States. And with that, Levon Kevorkian was able to sustain a comfortable living for himself and his family when most others in the country continued to struggle as the Great Depression dragged on. The Kevorkian children were raised in a very religious and stern and disciplined household. They insisted that their children abide by very strict Christian values. But as Jack grew, his own religious ideology clashed with those of his parents. He didn't believe in the teachings of the church. He didn't believe in a God, nor did he believe that miracles could happen. These were concepts that he was being made to study week in and week out when he and his sisters attended Sunday school. He simply did not believe God would have allowed the Armenian massacre to have happened, in which many relatives of the Kevorkians were killed, especially if one were to believe the notion that the Son of God was able to walk on water. By the time Jack was 12, he quit going to church altogether, as he questioned many of the teachings, and none of the answers he was getting he found satisfactory. Regardless of Jack's rejection of Christianity, he was still made to abide by the strict rules of his mother and father, who, aside from religion, insisted that their children focus on their education and their studies. And all three of the Kevorkian children performed extremely well academically. But because at the time the roles of men and women were different, the Kevorkians expected the most from Jack, their only son. And Jack very much had the desire, the drive, and the ability to live up to the loftiest of expectations of him. Everything Jack did, he did with enthusiasm and preeminence. Writing, reading, creativity, music, painting. And in addition to that, like he did with religion, Jack questioned everything with inquisitiveness and ingenuity. There were times when it came to debating various topics that he would often get the best of his teachers, much to their embarrassment. Even though Jack's peers at school were impressed with his abilities to command a classroom and the manner in which he learned at such an accelerated pace, his peers did tend to shy away from him. Eventually, Jack skipped a grade, he began studying and mastering foreign languages, including Japanese and German, but Jack would continue to struggle socially. He found it difficult to make friends, and that included girlfriends. He just really didn't want anything to distract him from his focus on academics. Jack Kevorkian graduated a year early at the age of 17 from Pontiac High School, top of the class of 1945. Jack attended the University of Michigan's College of Engineering with his sights set on one day finding work as a civil engineer. However, just after his first year at the university, he found that this course of study was quite dull. Either that or he wasn't being challenged enough, probably the latter. So he changed his major to biology and not long after that, Jack decided that he wanted to attend medical school. Seven years after he graduated from high school, Jack Kevorkian graduated from medical school in 1952. From there, he focused on pathology. Jack's studies, however, were temporarily put on hold because of the Korean War. He enlisted in the Army as a medical officer. And if you thought of the TV show MASH when I said that, I did too. Jack was in Korea for a little more than a year. He finished up his commitment to the military service in Colorado after which he was honorably discharged and went back to finish up his residency at the University of Michigan Hospital. It was during his residency that Jack became transfixed on the concepts of death and the actual process of dying. He began visiting patients that were terminal, and what he would do is he would sit there and wait for the moment that the patient actually died and attempted to take pictures of their eyes in order to capture that exact moment that the patient passed away. His thought was that by studying these photographs, physicians would be able to differentiate between the various states of unconsciousness, like telling the difference between whether somebody has passed out, or if they are in a coma, or in some sort of state of shock, or if the person is actually deceased. The idea was is that they would be able to know ahead of time if the patient was a candidate for resuscitation 
or if they'd just be wasting their time. Jack himself said that his top reason for this line of study was that he found the subject matter interesting, but he was also drawn to it because it was so taboo. It was also Jack who was interested in the possibility of using condemned prison inmates for some of the medical studies that he was interested in conducting when it came to understanding the criminal mind, but he wanted to conduct experiments while the subjects were still alive. And he was advocating for this type of research as early as 1958. It was his strong belief that so much time, money, and resources could be saved by carrying out these studies, which would begin while the subjects were still in prison and continue until they were put to death. For these unconventional ideas that Jack had, he was given the moniker Dr. Death. Needless to say, the University Medical Center in Michigan, where Jack was an intern at the time, weren't too keen on his concepts. Now, once the media started getting wind about their so-called Dr. Death, he was removed from the program. From there, Jack went to finish up his internship at Pontiac General Hospital, where he continued coming up with more questionable experiments that he wanted to conduct, which included blood transfusions coming from dead people and going into living people. He thought that if he were able to perfect this, that they would be able to better serve those wounded during military action. Taking the blood from a freshly dead soldier and transfusing it into the body of an injured one who is in desperate need when there is often a shortage of blood in situations like this. Jack went so far as to present this proposal at the Pentagon, hoping for a government grant to fund his transfusion research, arguing that if this were to be perfected, it could be pivotal in saving lives in the war that was going on at the time, which was the Vietnam War, but Jack was denied the grant from the government. However, he would not be stopped. But the denial of the grant only alienated him even more so from his colleagues in the medical field. As a matter of fact, many of them were afraid of some of these experiments, viewing them as highly problematic, and eventually Jack Kevorkian himself had contracted hepatitis C sometime during the 1960s while conducting experiments on himself, resulting in health problems that plagued him for the rest of his life. So Jack, after finishing his internship and becoming a pathologist by 1960, he would struggle to hold down steady work for much of his professional life, due largely to his unorthodox ideas. He went from hospital to hospital in and around the Detroit area. He tried his hand at opening up his own private practice, but he did not do well with that either, eventually shutting that down and moving out here to California, well, out there because I'm in Nevada now, where he found a couple of part-time jobs as a pathologist in Long Beach, California. And neither one of those lasted long either due to Jack's inability to see eye-to-eye -eye with not just his colleagues, but also his superiors. He blamed his various failures on the fears of others, fears of what he brought to the field of medicine. And in this quote-unquote involuntary retirement of sorts, Jack began to revisit the possibility of researching death row inmates again, but that still gained no traction. And then he had apparently become romantically involved with someone, engaged even, and by this time he was into his 40s. But like his professional career, his personal life didn't fare much better. It seemed as though Jack, you know, he's a doctor and he's probably a little bit too smart for his own good. And the woman that he had become engaged to, it didn't seem as though she lived up to his standards when it came to being driven and motivated. And once that relationship ended, by this time it was getting into the early 80s. He was still in California he was single and he was alone and he had no real stable place to live. He was known to have slept in his vehicle at times and his only income was Social Security. By the mid-1980s, Jack was back in Michigan and he was publishing some articles in medical journals. Now, it wouldn't be any of the top-rated medical journals out there because they all refused to publish any of his things. But still, they were getting published somewhere. And it was around this time 
that he learned that condemned prisoners were being put to death in Europe with the use of a lethal injection. Now, this method had been used in the United States, the first time being in late 1982 in Texas, but it wasn't widely available at the time. And this renewed his interest, Jack's interest, not only in studying and experimenting on death row inmates, but it also gave birth to a new movement for Jack, and this would be assisted suicide, another way that he would be able to study the process of death. His writings shifted from experimentation on the condemned to the potential benefits of assisted suicide, which, as we know, was not a thing that was legal back then, but as we will come to find out, it wasn't technically illegal either. But today, it is only legal in California, Hawaii, Maine, Montana, New Jersey, Oregon, Vermont, Washington State, Washington, D.C., and in Colorado, it is legal, but only by court order. The rest of the states, assisted suicide is still illegal. After writing about assisted suicide, Jack developed what has been called a suicide machine, though he named it a thanatron, which translates from Greek to mean instrument of death. It has three vials that would administer a dose of fluid that each one contained, a saline solution first, pain medication second, and potassium chloride in the third one, which is the poison. The way that Jack designed this machine, it was something that a terminally ill patient could use to give themselves lethal injections. He tried for years to advocate for the creation of obitoriums, places where doctors would be able to help those who were terminally ill and ending their own lives, but his proposals were resoundingly rejected year after year. So Jack decided to do it on his own. And on June 4th, 1990, a woman named Janet Adkins, with the help of Jack Kevorkian, used his suicide machine to end her own life. She was 54 years old and had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Once she was diagnosed, she began searching for exactly the thing that Jack was doing, someone to help her die before the disease progressed. Jack was charged with murder in Janet's death, but there was nothing definitive about assisted suicide in Michigan legislation, so the charges were subsequently dropped. Within six months of that, however, a judge in Michigan ordered an injunction effectively preventing Jack from using his suicide machine to help anyone else end their life. Following that, Jack's license to practice medicine was suspended, but he again would not be stopped. Because he was no longer able to practice medicine, he would not be able to acquire the solutions for his machine, so he developed a new machine that would poison patients with carbon monoxide via a gas mask. By 1992, assisted suicide was outlawed in Michigan, which was aimed directly at stopping Jack Kevorkian from continuing to help anyone else end their own life. But he kept going and would ultimately face trial four times, three of them ending in acquittals, one ending in a mistrial. So the state of Michigan went back to make all the changes in the legislation to ensure that Jack would not be able to slip through the various loopholes that existed as the law was written. But Jack kept going still, with even more intensity driven by the state's relentless pursuit of him. Jack Kevorkian seemed to enjoy the challenge of beating the system that was so in opposition of what he believed in. And then in 1998, a video that he had made of one of his patients that was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease that used his invention to take his own life was aired on national television on the show 60 Minutes. And in the interview that followed, Jack dared the state to charge him with murder, which the state of Michigan gladly did. Second degree murder to be exact. He was convicted and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison with the possibility of parole. After serving eight years, Jack was released on parole for good behavior, but he also had to promise to not help anyone else commit suicide, which he did. 
Jack was also in very poor health at this time and was not expected to live much longer after his release. But to the surprise of everyone, he did exceptionally well after he got out of prison. He began making appearances and speaking at engagements on the topic of assisted suicide. He also ran for U.S. Congress in the state of Michigan. He didn't win. He came in third. A movie about Jack Kevorkian entitled You Don't Know Jack was released on HBO in 2010, starring Al Pacino as Jack, a role which earned him an Emmy and a Golden Globe, and the praise of Jack Kevorkian himself. Jack Kevorkian passed away on June 3, 2011, due to kidney failure complicated by hepatitis C. He was 83 years old. In total, Jack Kevorkian is said to have helped 130 terminally ill people end their lives over the course of eight years, between 1990 and 1998. According to Jack's attorney, each person did the action themselves, administering whatever poison that was used on themselves to end their lives on their own. Jack was said to have only attached the patient to the machine that he had constructed. Beyond that, it was all on them to push the button on the device. It had always been Jack's contention that he did not cause these patients to die, he caused them to end their suffering. But according to reports in the local media, more than half of Jack's patients were in fact not terminally ill, and some of them were dead less than 24 hours after meeting Jack, which meant they didn't spend as much time being counseled as they should have been nor did they receive any sort of professional help or undergo any psychiatric treatment ahead of time. And some of his patients, it's been said, were depressed and wanting to end their lives for other reasons, not because of terminal illness. And the autopsies on some of them showed no signs of diseases at all. So it is believed that Jack did assist perfectly healthy individuals possibly some who struggled with mental health issues, to end their lives. When this whole thing with Jack of Orkian started, I was still in high school, and I remember it being in the news all the time, but I don't recall thinking much of it other than very sick people who were going to die anyway, wanting to spare themselves the suffering. I kept hearing that argument, but people were so adamant against it. At the time, I don't really recall having any feelings about this subject matter either way. But beyond that, I didn't pay much attention to what was going on with this guy. But I knew from then on that the name Kevorkian would always be synonymous with the idea of assisted suicide. And that is what we're going to talk about today, helping someone take their own life. And I don't necessarily mean like the other pair of cases that I discussed previously, For those of you who are on Patreon, I covered the case of Michelle Carter and Tyrell Presbytian. Each one of them helped or encouraged Conrad Roy and Jandra Brown, respectively, to end their lives, but not in the way that Jack Kevorkian did, or the man in the case that we're talking about today did, when a perfect stranger approached him and asked him for his help. In this 164th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Kevorkian. So, did you ever think that I could go from talking about Dr. Death, Jack Kevorkian, to talking about 90s bands NSYNC and Backstreet Boys? Well, dreamers, the time has arrived. To understand why the gentleman who will be at the center of our story today may have ended up where he did on a summer night in the Manhattan, New York borough of Harlem in July of 2009, it is incumbent upon us to go back a little bit more and acquaint ourselves with another character in this story, a man named Louis Perlman, or Lou for short. Lou was born on June 18, 1954 in Flushing, New York, a neighborhood in Queens. His father operated a dry cleaning business, his mom worked at a school cafeteria, and he was also a cousin of a musician best known for being one half of Simon and Garfunkel, Art Garfunkel, and he would serve as an inspiration for the direction Lou's life would ultimately take when it came to breaking his way into the music business. If it wasn't going to be music, then he wanted to fly. 
as when he was a kid, he lived near the Flushing Airport and used to enjoy watching the aircraft land and take off. He tried managing a musical group when he was a teen, but that didn't seem to be going anywhere, so he turned his attention to aviation. A part of this included a project that he worked on in school where he developed a business for using helicopters in New York similar to the taxi services. He was also fascinated with blimps and went to what was then West Germany to study airships, which were invented in Germany by Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, who had been inspired by hot air balloons that he had seen being used by the United States during their Civil War. When Lou learned all that he needed to know about airships, he came back to New York and created Airship Enterprises, where he would lease out blimps for companies to use for advertising. The first one that he had leased out was to American clothing company Jordash Enterprises in 1980. But the thing is, the blimp had been painted gold. And as this blimp was being flown, the gold paint actually became too hot, which caused the blimp to come crashing down. From there, Lou constructed a second blimp to replace it and was able to land a contract with McDonald's, called McBlimp, and followed that up with a lease with MetLife Insurance, but that blimp went down in a tornado in Texas. Lou continued to pursue his blimp dreams, ending up in Orlando, Florida, where he picked up his blimp leasing business once again, and he landed a contract with SeaWorld and with Pink Floyd. But a series of a couple of more crashes ultimately caused Lou's blimp business to fold. However, as his business was crashing and burning, pun intended, he was involved in what is known as a pump and dump scam, where he was paying some high-pressure salespeople to keep his failing company stock prices high until he was able to sell it all off. So here we have the beginnings of Lou Perlman's shady business dealings. As his blimps tanked, Lou always had it in the back of his mind that he wanted to somehow get into music. There was a time that a private plane had been chartered especially for him for some reason, and I don't know why, by New Kids on the Block. Lou was so enamored with the success of that band at the time, as many of us remember back in the mid-80s to the early 90s, how huge New Kids were, and that experience had stuck with him. So, officially out of the blimp business for good, Lou decided that boy bands was where it was at next for him. So, he placed an ad in the newspaper looking for singers or musicians to audition for a boy band or two that he wanted to create that would appeal to the same demographic that New Kids on the Block had, young teen and preteen girls. The first band that came together became known as the Backstreet Boys. That was followed up by NSYNC. And other musicians Lou is credited with discovering include Aaron Carter. As you know, he is the brother of one of the Backstreet Boys, the band O-Town, which came about on MTV's Making the Band, as well as LFO and Take 5. But as shady as Lou had been about selling off his stock in his blimp crashing business, he was just as shady in the music business as well, as he had been sued by basically everyone that he ever managed. In part of the lawsuit, the Backstreet Boys claimed that under Lou's management, they only made about $300,000 while having raked in more than $10 million, and that Lou Perlman had pocketed nearly all that money. He was not only paid as their manager and producer, but he also paid himself as the official sixth member of the band, essentially taking one-sixth of their salary. Backstreet Boys, having sold 130 million records around the world, became the best-selling boy band of all time, a record which stands to this day. Lou next came out with NSYNC. He had a similar formula for that band and its style, and they'd go on to sell 70 million records worldwide. This officially elevated Lou Perlman to music mogul status. All the lawsuits against him were either won or they were settled out of court, effectively thrusting Lou into financial ruin. At least it should have. In 2002, Lou got into some shady talent scouting businesses. 
businesses that went through a bevy of name changes. Options Talent Group, Transcontinental Talent, Wilhelmina Talent, Webstyle Talent Network, Fashion Rock, and Talent Rock. But they were all essentially the same business. But really, the business practices were questionable at best, and at worst, the whole entire thing was a fraud. What they were doing is known as a photo mill scam, which is where people who come to the agency hoping to be signed to and, you know, to get work as a model, they're not allowed to submit their own pictures that they've taken with their own photographers from their portfolios, but instead the agency requires them to pay an exorbitant amount of money to have their own photographers take new pictures of the models. And once the money is paid to have these pictures taken, no work is ever found for these aspiring models. There were thousands of complaints to the Florida Attorney General as well as to the Better Business Bureau, but investigations into loose business practices led nowhere. And on top of that, while this was all going on, he declared bankruptcy. By 2006, it was discovered that Lou Perlman had been orchestrating a large-scale Ponzi scheme, among the other things that he was doing, bilking investors to the tune of more than $300 million over the course of two decades. So this had been a thing dating back to his blimp-crashing days. What Lou was doing was getting people to invest in a pair of companies that he created— Transcontinental Airline Travel Services Incorporated and Transcontinental Airlines Incorporated. The problem was that these companies didn't exist anywhere except in Lou Perlman's head. He made them up. He doctored up fake documents, including FDIC paperwork, which, you know, assures clients that their money is protected in case financial institutions collapse by the federal government. Their money is insured. He also had fake insurance documents from AIG, which is American International Group, as well as Lloyd's of London, also an insurance company. With this kind of insurance, Lou was easily able to gain the trust of his investors. Like, there's no risk, even if we lose or if the world goes into a recession and all is lost, we're covered. And to back his scheme even more, he also made up fake financial statements from reputable accounting firms, which also doubled as a way for him to secure substantial bank loans as well. By the time Florida officials seized the companies in 2007, there was essentially no money and no assets. Over the course of 20 years, Lou had taken in more than $300 million, and the $95 million of that which came from investors was gone too. Documents showed that his airline company owned 41 planes. All of those were fake. Lou only had three airplanes, and he didn't even own them. With the investigation closing in on him, Lou Perlman absconded to Indonesia in January of 2007, but he was recognized by someone vacationing there, and that person alerted local law enforcement. He was arrested in Indonesia on June 14, 2007, Eleven months later, Lou was convicted of conspiracy, money laundering, and making false statements in a bankruptcy proceeding, and he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. At the time, Lou was 54 years old. Now, he had also been accused of some sexual misconduct with several of the boy band clients that he had been dealing with in the past, but he always denied it, and he was never charged with anything related to that. Lou was set to be released from prison on March 24th, 2029 at the age of 75, but he would never make it. In 2010, Lou had a stroke, but he also had an infection in a heart valve. In August of 2016, he underwent heart valve replacement surgery, and while he was scheduled for another procedure, he ended up passing away of heart failure on August 19th, 2016, at the Federal Correctional Facility located in Miami, Florida. He was 62 years old. Well, one of the many, many people who lost money investing in Lou Perlman's fake airline company was a man named Jeffrey Locker. And this may very well have been one of the things that led Jeffrey into Harlem the night our story took place, or where it all began anyway, the night of July 14th, 2009 as the country and the world 
were in the throes of a financial collapse. So, Jeffrey Locker, what can I say about the guy? There really is not much out there written about him online, about who he was in life, who he was as a person. Even his Wikipedia page is scant, with all that is said about him is that he was an American motivational speaker and author. That's it. I wish there was more that I knew or had to say about him, but really that wasn't what we, the public, would come to know about him. And that would be as a result of the events of that night in Harlem. Harlem is one of the unlikeliest places for a man like Jeffrey Locker to wind up. At least that was the sentiment of those who were closely involved in this story. That's what they were saying at the time. But for me, it's like how I described human nature in our last episode on Stuart Tay, the story about honor roll students who kill. Unlikely killers? Maybe so, but I remarked that people are capable of just about anything, and in addition to that, nothing anybody does really surprises me anymore. So if Mr. Jeffrey Locker so happened to find himself in Harlem, he must have had his reasons. Just because he's described as coming from an upper-middle-class neighborhood, just because he had a beautiful house and a lovely wife and equally lovely children over in Long Island, New York— It doesn't necessarily mean he had no business in Harlem. He went there for a reason, and that will become clear as we go along here. Regardless of how picture-perfect Jeffrey and his family looked on all of their social media, I think it's safe to say that what some people put on social media is often heavily filtered. It is only a glimpse, merely what they want people to see. Especially if you're in the line of work that Jeffrey is in motivational speaking, and he's an author. He's going to want his social media to reflect what he's trying to sell. The book Jeffrey co-authored is called Teachings for a New World, which was published in 1998. On Amazon, it says, quote, This exciting self-help novel is a heartwarming story of human potential that ignites a spiritual connection between you and your loved ones. It includes a study guide for parents and their children, and a study guide for the adult reader. Journey to a new world of inner peace, family unity, better health, financial success, and improved relationships. So yeah, it would mean he and his family needed to mirror his teachings. I got some Shanann Watts vibes here with the multi-level marketing work that she did. She was all over social media all the time selling these products and using her family, her children, her husband, her home, as examples of success. So I assume that if you're a police officer and you come across something that seems out of place, then you're going to question everything. Why was Jeffrey in Harlem on the night of July 14, 2009? And how was it that he would end up dead, slumped behind the wheel of his Dodge Magnum, And I want to thank everybody in the Facebook group who provided me an answer to that question. I knew what that car was. I just could not put my finger on what the name of it, the model and the make of it was. So thank you. How did he end up behind the wheel of his Dodge Magnum, stabbed to death? At first glance, the whole scene appeared to be a robbery gone bad. It seemed as though the only thing missing was Jeffrey's ATM card. His wallet wasn't even missing, just the card. But this is a thing that the NYPD had seen plenty of times in these so-called rougher neighborhoods. Jeffrey was someplace he probably shouldn't have been, and he had a deadly encounter with someone who may have seen Jeffrey as an easy target since he appeared to be out of place. So the first thoughts were perhaps he came out to Harlem to try to buy drugs or maybe to seek out the services of a sex worker. This theory was bolstered when an eyewitness reported to investigators that Jeffrey had gone into a nearby convenience store and purchased some condoms. So they were thinking early on, maybe that was it. This guy was looking for a sex worker. Lots of people have their little secrets and it certainly would explain why Jeffrey was in that neighborhood that night. 
However, in an interview, a longtime friend of Jeffrey's named Steve Danunzio insisted that there was no way that his friend, who he had known for almost three decades, was in Harlem to hire a sex worker. He explained that Jeffrey was a devoted family man and that he and his wife, Lois, were very much dedicated to their marriage and to each other. He was faithful to his wife and he was very well respected. He was an upstanding guy. Jeffrey always talked about how much he loved Lois, that she was his best friend. The whole family was very loving and very close. And dreamers, normally, I would say I take what people have to say about their good friends with a grain of salt because you never know what goes on behind closed doors, no matter how well you think you know somebody. But I'm going to go ahead and say that I believe what Steve is saying here about his friend Jeffrey for a few reasons. But at this point, because police did follow the condom lead for quite some time, but they were never able to find any definitive proof that Jeffrey ever made that purchase. They talked to store clerks. They looked for more witnesses. Jeffrey had no receipt for any purchases that night, nor did he have the condoms anywhere on him or in the car. The investigation also revealed that there was no evidence or witnesses that saw or said Jeffrey was looking for drugs either. But the one thing that police were certain of is that Jeffrey really had no reason to be in Harlem. The line of work that he was in, this was an unlikely place for him to be at. In business, Jeffrey appeared to be living up to what he spoke and wrote about. He was brimming with confidence. He was always so well put together. He presented well. He was tenacious and self-assured. It was believed that he would have continued to shine if he had not met such a seemingly violent death. So in addition to trying to figure out why he was in Harlem, one of the things police needed to do next was inform the family that their loving husband and father was gone. But a strange thing happened when police arrived at the locker house to bring the awful news that Jeffrey was never coming home again. And it is a detail about this case that I have always found so perplexing. Going to somebody's house to tell them a loved one has been found dead, seemingly murdered, is undoubtedly one of the most difficult aspects of being in law enforcement, I'm sure. I've never been the bearer of such bad news like this, so I can only imagine what that car ride is like for the officers as they are headed to bring the worst news this family is ever going to receive. They prepare themselves for what the reaction is going to be, if the family is going to break down into hysterics, be ready to try to answer the tough questions as best they can, even practicing exactly how they're going to word what they have to say. So the detectives drove out to the exclusive neighborhood that the lockers resided in in the suburbs of Long Island, ready to make that death notification. It would be Detectives Kevin Flynn and Jeff Hirschman knocking on their front door. And if they were expecting tears and hysterics, well, they were totally wrong. As a matter of fact, it sounded like it was the easiest, smoothest, the least emotional death notification the detectives had ever made, probably to this very day. Lois Locker not only lacked any kind of emotion, she also lacked any sense of shock or surprise at what she was being told. The detectives stood there, looking at her, searching her face for any smidgen of anything, and there was just nothing. And then Jeffrey's daughter was like, I'm going back to bed. And that was pretty much it. The detectives walked back to their car and they were like, well, that just happened. They wrote it off as maybe being one of the many different ways human beings receive bad news or the way they grieve loss. But it didn't make it any less weird to either one of these detectives. But they didn't know the lockers. They can't judge based on one interaction, but still, the detective said in an interview with CBS, it seemed like they weren't surprised because it felt like they already knew that Jeffrey was dead. And to me, that is very, very troubling because how and why would they be knowing that information? 
So leaving that reaction, non-reaction of the lockers be, the investigation of Jeffrey's death went fairly quickly. They knew his ATM card was out there floating around somewhere, and it would only be a matter of time before they would be alerted to it. So they left the cart active and waited. In the meantime, investigators got a hold of some surveillance footage of someone getting in and out of Jeffrey's car just about the time they believe he was killed. So they had a general idea of what this person looked like. And sure enough, within a very short period of time, the bank contacted the detectives on the case and informed them that there was new activity on Jeffrey's missing bank card. His account had been accessed as many as five times at five different locations, and a total of about $1,100 was withdrawn. And each time the card was used... The person using it was captured on surveillance cameras, and every time it was the same person, and that person matched the person seen getting in and out of Jeffrey's car at the location where it was ultimately discovered with Jeffrey slumped dead in the front seat. So the detectives printed up some screen captures of the images of this guy, and they went out to the neighborhood where the card was being used, and it didn't take long before someone was like, oh yeah, that's Kenneth. Kenneth Minor, that is. Detectives quickly tracked down Kenneth Minor and brought him in for questioning. And his personal story was one that investigators unfortunately have heard plenty of times before in other murder investigations. Kenneth had some things in his criminal background, nothing like murder, but, you know, some drug convictions. And at least one time he was convicted of robbery. It's pretty common for petty criminals to eventually escalate to murder, and they figure that's what they're seeing here in Kenneth Minor. But what Kenneth would go on to say about his encounter with Jeffrey Locker on that night in Harlem was unlike anything the detectives had ever heard before. From the start, though, nobody was buying what Kenneth Minor was trying to sell. I'll just tell you that right now. At first... Kenneth came off as kind of a jackass. He admitted for the better part of 10 hours as detectives were sitting there threatening him with first-degree murder charges and robbery, he figured, you know, when you all shut your mouth and listen to what I have to say, I'll be out of here in no time. And he just smugly sat there thinking to himself, these cops have no clue what they're talking about. They weren't there. They don't know anything. But at the same time, Kenneth was trying to figure out how was he going to explain himself and explain Jeffrey Locker and what actually happened? Because he was certain that he wasn't going to be believed, even if he was telling them the God's honest truth. Eventually, Kenneth decided to start giving the details of his encounter with Jeffrey Locker the night that he died. According to Kenneth, he was casually standing on the street corner, I suppose innocently minding his own business, when he was approached by Jeffrey. Well, not really innocently, as Kenneth would explain, that he struggled with some addiction problems, alcoholism, and he was often out there buying and selling drugs himself. That's what he was doing on that corner. Jeffrey noticed Kenneth, and he went up to him, and he said he was interested in purchasing a gun. So, if what Kenneth is saying is true then that would provide us with some explanation as to what Jeffrey was doing in that neighborhood. And you know, Kenneth is probably looking at this guy, all clean cut, nice car, whatever. Either way, he wanted to know what Jeffrey wanted the gun for. Kenneth said that there was a moment of silence before Jeffrey said that he wanted Kenneth to shoot him. Now, if we are to believe this story, we can assume that Jeffrey had been thinking about this for quite some time. He knew where to look for someone because that someone would likely be willing to do what he was asking for money. It would have to be somebody that needed the money. I would imagine that it isn't easy to find a person willing to shoot you. And we can assume that most people, if approached the way that Kenneth was, would immediately say no and walk away. If Kenneth didn't do that right off the bat, then... Jeffrey's probably thinking that he has someone who was, at the very least, considering it. So once Kenneth stuck around for this conversation to continue, Jeffrey perhaps thought, okay, this one's going to bite. And as we'll find out later on, 
Kenneth wasn't the first person that Jeffrey had approached about this. So Kenneth began trying to explain the story to the detectives, that he met Jeffrey on his corner and asked him if he would help him kill himself. Not just simply asked. Kenneth said he asked with desperation, nearly begging for his help. It was about this time that Kenneth told the detectives, this isn't a murder, this is a Kevorkian. He then asked if the detectives knew what he was talking about, if they knew what he meant, and they were like, yes, you're referring to Dr. Death and claiming this is a case of assisted suicide. And Kenneth said, exactly, that's what this is. This was a Kevorkian. Well, once Kenneth was able to confirm that the detectives were clear on where he was going with the story, he was ready to let it all spill out. He admitted, you know, I I have a problem with drinking and I have a problem with drugs, using them, buying them, selling them. And that's what he was out there doing when Jeffrey drove up and parked near his corner. Kenneth sensed that there was a measure of hesitation, but he also sensed that this guy was there for some reason that was important to him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been anywhere near this neighborhood. And I'm pretty sure Kenneth saw dollar signs oozing from Jeffrey. So he's probably interested in whatever it is that Jeffrey was there for. So he got out of his car and he started walking towards him. And Kenneth began advancing in his direction too. And asked Jeffrey first, what do you want? That's when Jeffrey told him he wanted someone to help him get a gun. Now Kenneth is seeing red flags and immediately begins to think that Jeffrey is an undercover cop. And he told him, you've got to be a cop. You have to go. And Jeffrey did as he was told. He got back into his car and drove away. But it would not be the last interaction that Kenneth would have with Jeffrey. A little while later, Jeffrey came back. And as Kenneth put it, the fact that he did come back impressed him. I'm not sure why. Maybe Kenneth thought Jeffrey would be afraid to come back. And the fact that he did demonstrated that he was determined to get that gun. The second time around, Jeffrey had Kenneth's full attention. He walked up to the passenger side of the car and in speaking to Jeffrey through the window to talk to him again, there was something else that he added this time in the conversation. He added to what he wanted from Kenneth. Not only did Jeffrey want his help getting a gun, he wanted Kenneth to use that gun to shoot him, to shoot him to death. When asked about the tone of this conversation, how was it that Jeffrey made this statement to Kenneth? He said that Jeffrey was eerily quiet and calm. And at first, Kenneth was thinking this guy cannot be for real, but he was going to roll with the conversation to see what was going to happen or better yet, what he might be able to get out of this, meaning some cash. Kenneth, of course, had no desire or intention to shoot this stranger that he just met, but he thought maybe he could make a little bit of money off the guy by at least getting him the gun that he wanted. So Kenneth told Jeffrey, okay, give me $60 and your cell phone number and I'll see what I could do about getting you a gun. So Jeffrey pulled out his wallet, he took out the money, gave that and his phone number to Kenneth, and he told Jeffrey, okay, I'll let you know, I'll give you a call. Well, Kenneth, as it would turn out, really didn't seem to have any intentions of using that $60 to get a gun. I don't think he would have been able to unless it was a really, really cheap gun that didn't work or would malfunction. Whatever the case was, Kenneth did not go to get a gun. While he didn't outwardly admit to what he did with the money, the investigation revealed that he did go over to the apartment of someone who sold crack. He bought some and smoked it up. And once he was done, he used that person's landline at that person's apartment to call Jeffrey to let him know that it wasn't looking like he was going to be able to find a gun for him tonight. But because Kenneth still wanted to keep Jeffrey hanging on to see if he could get more money out of him, while still trying to be cautious about what Jeffrey's hidden agenda might be, he told him that he would meet up with him and they could talk some more, just wait there, he'd be back in a minute. According to Kenneth, that's all he wanted to try and do, to squeeze more money out of Jeffrey before he sent him on his way. 
pretty bold on Kenneth's part, taking this guy's money and coming back with nothing only to ask for more money. But that's what he wanted to do. As Kenneth went back to go and meet with Jeffrey, he had taken the phone from the apartment along with him. He took the phone and the cord. He had yanked it out of the phone jack. And he did that because he was really paranoid about what he was getting himself into that night. His judgment, he said, was clouded by alcohol and drugs. Though, again, he didn't admit to it outright. He said, I may have done a few drugs. Whatever it was, Kenneth wasn't making the best choices in the world. And he knew that if something were to happen, if Jeffrey reported anything to police or if something did happen to Jeffrey, Kenneth here has made his presence at this late hour of the night in this area known to several people. And they all know him. He thought that if he took the phone and its cord with him, nobody would be able to place him as having been there. But when I read this detail, it kind of had me thinking that Kenneth just might be taking Jeffrey's request seriously. He might be interested in helping him die. Otherwise, I don't think Kenneth would be all that much paranoid about this. Though we do have to take into consideration that he was high and that can ramp up the paranoia. Anyway, he headed back to the place where he'd left Jeffrey parked waiting for him. And while Kenneth was trying to explain why he wasn't able to get a gun, Jeffrey's phone rang. While Kenneth couldn't be sure who it was, he assumed it was the wife looking for him. All he heard was Jeffrey's end of the conversation in which he said that his tire was flat and that he was getting it taken care of. He found a guy to help him. Kenneth thought it was kind of funny that Jeffrey was lying to his wife. Now, we can take this phone call one of two ways. Remember, the detective said that when they told Lois that her husband was found dead, slumped behind the wheel of his car, she had little to no emotional reaction and neither did the kids. I don't know all of their ages exactly from the picture that I saw on TV, it looked like the boys might have been finishing high school, close to it, or perhaps about to start college. And the daughter, I believe I read throughout this article that she was 13 at the time. So they're not exactly little kids, but none of them had any real notable reaction to speak of, which led detectives to think that they already knew that Jeffrey was dead once they started to hear the story and how it would unfold. And the only way that the family really could have known that is if they knew of Jeffrey's intentions to end his life, which would lend credence to Kenneth's seemingly unbelievable story here. And this phone call was merely Lois trying to find out if Jeffrey had done it yet or not. The story about the flat tire may have been his code for he's in the place. He said, I'm taking care of it. I've got a guy working on it. And all of that could have just as easily meant he's got a guy working on helping him die. But if we don't believe Kenneth's story here that Jeffrey asked him to help him kill himself, then this phone call might mean the wife was legitimately looking for Jeffrey, wondering where he was. This would mean she didn't know of his intentions of killing himself, and Jeffrey fed her the lie about a flat tire to keep her at bay while he carried out this plan on his own. What? Lois knew or didn't know, we will never really know for sure. Anyway, as Kenneth sat there in this very awkward situation, if things were going to go down the way that he said it was, he had a growing concern about what was going to happen next. Considering he had already taken this guy's money, he'd already smoked it all up, and he did not produce a gun for him. What was Jeffrey going to want now? Because technically, Kenneth is on the hook for that 60 bucks. He's got a guy here who's saying he wanted him to kill him. Very awkward, very stressful. So Kenneth figured maybe he could give him some ideas or some pointers on killing himself. Because that's what one does, I guess. But anyway, he suggested that Jeffrey dive into the river that they were parked near. And in looking at maps, I can't say if it was the Harlem River or the Hudson River as Harlem looks as though it's nestled between the two. Because the Hudson River is much bigger, probably deeper and faster flowing, that might be the one that Kenneth was referring to. 
that one would get the job done. But Jeffrey explained that his death could not be a suicide. It needed to appear to be a homicide in order for his family to make a claim on his life insurance. And he apparently had upwards of $12 million in life insurance policies. Some of it had been recently purchased. If he took his own life, as the policies were written, his family would not be able to collect on any of it, so it had to look like a murder. Jeffrey basically told Kenneth that he was worth more dead than alive. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and end part one here. Part two will be following very shortly within a couple of days from now, so you will not have to wait long. I'm actually almost done with part two. It was just getting a little bit longer than I thought it was going to be, so I went ahead and split it in half. We will pick this story up from where we're going to tie in the blimp man, Lou Perman, into the Jeffrey Locker story and continue from there. So hang tight. We will be back shortly to finish up the conclusion of this case, the tale of the Kevorkian. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.